You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Tonight we're in a groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble. Out the door Beat out old trouble on the drum Beat out old trouble on the drum Beat out old trouble on the drum And kick old trouble out the door Beat me that rhythm on the drum Beat me that rhythm on the drum Beat me that rhythm on the drum And kick old trouble out the door Kick him out the door Kick him out the door Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano, the host with the mostess. Now, young Kelly is the world's greatest producer, Kelly Whitworth. I've got to give her the, you know... The accolades about the guests, because I don't choose them, she does. She's put her hand in the 3CR barrel, and we've pulled out Prue Light. Hello, Prue. Hello. 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 Now, I stuffed up your surname. Tell us all about it. Tell us all about it. Uh, Well, my maiden name, using the old terms, Mm -hmm. was Smith. (laughs) No wonder wonder you've ditched it. (laughs) And so when I got married, in the old days, I'm 74, in the old days most people took their husband's name and his name was List. He was born in Holland, so my surname is List, but translated it means light. List. List. It means light Light. in in English. Light. That's fascinating, isn't it? It's like, like my late wife's first name. Her first name was Ellen, which means light. Yeah. Interesting. We've got something in common, Pro. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, you've told us. So you were born in what, 48, 47? I was born in 1948, yeah. Right. And um, where were you born? England, Nottingham. Nottingham. Oh. Mm-hmm. You must be sick of those Sheriff of Nottingham jokes. Yeah. yeah. Um, most people don't bother now. I don't know whether anybody even knows about the Sheriff of Nottingham anymore. I think it's long... <laughs> It's history. You mean, are we showing our age, Prue, by talking about the Sheriff of Nottingham? Right. Probably. So, can you tell us something about your parents? My parents? Mm. Well, my father was a, in, at the end, before he retired, he was a bank manager, but he was a bank clerk who became a bank manager. And I think he was deeply conservative. In fact, almost Victorian. <laughs> My mother was lovely. My father was... I, I found him difficult. He was he was cold, I think, is the mm. best way of describing it. My mum was lovely. She was a warm woman who'd had rheumatic fever when she was 12, so she had a damaged heart, so she was always a bit sick. Um, yeah. Mm. That, and, and, and they were married for a very long time. I shouldn't be too harsh on my father. He probably... His his 
oldest brother, he was the youngest of four, and his oldest brother was killed in the First World War mm. when he would have been about five. So I sort of look back on that and think, well, that may have informed the whole family at that point to, to lose somebody in the First World War, the oldest son. Yeah, and it was a horrendous situation. Here in Australia, then, we had 5 million people, 420,000 volunteered, and the key word was mm. volunteered. 60,000 mm. died, 8,000 yeah. in one day. And of those yeah. that came back, another 60,000 died of war wounds within a yeah. decade. And it's the same all over Europe. I, mean, I remember yeah. my father's yeah. father was just damaged beyond repair yeah. because of their yeah. experience. You know, it's easy for us to... Uh, yeah. It was a different world. It yeah. was a different world. And, and that man would have been my uncle. Well, he was very young when he went mm. because my father was about five. So his oldest brother, he would have been... In his late teens or early 20s. And, That's right. And he died in 1915. And so, and I have no... I, my grandmother I didn't know very well. She lived a long way away. She lived to be a very old woman. But, again, she was... But she would have been affected. If you lose your, if you lose your oldest son in that war, I, I, I think you would have to have been affected by that. So, so... That's my parents. They were very conventional and very conservative, and um, I am not. <laughs> right. Well, well, we don't know that. Look, 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 I hate to tell you this. You've got to pace yourself. This interview is a marathon. There's nowhere else on radio where you get 54 to 56 minutes. No ads, no music. You may have been on the planet for 74 years, but we need to pace ourselves or we'll have nothing to talk about. All right, just, just answer the questions. <laughs> Okay, I'll answer the question. <laughs> uh, any brothers and sisters? Mm-hmm. One sister. Younger or older? Older. So would you describe yourself, what, as a typical middle class in between, you know, the war and... Uh... Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yes, probably. And so eventually they packed you off to school somewhere? Um. Well... Because my father worked for a bank, he moved around a little bit. And we, so I was born in Nottingham. When I was about six, we moved to a place called Norwich. And then and I started school there in a primary school. So then we moved to a place called Wellingborough, and I finished my primary school there. And then we moved to another place called Earthlingborough, and then I went to secondary school. Mm. And I don't know whether you're aware of... Uh, the education system at that point in England had a, a, what I consider to be a disastrous exam called the 11 plus. Yes, I've heard of the and, 11 plus, yes. And at 11, you took, you took, it had two parts. And if you failed the 11 plus, then you were doomed to go to a comprehensive school, mm. which was not considered as good as high school. My sister passed the 11 plus and went to the local high school and I failed the 11 plus because I failed the maths part. English part was fine, maths part, I failed. So Ooh, I failed it. Could you remember, can you remember that I can period? Remember. Tell us about yeah. it. Yeah, oh, well, it, because it had such an effect, I suppose, because to yeah. actually determine somebody's, not determine, but have an impact on what happens to somebody's life at 11 because I, I ended up going to the local convent school because my parents didn't want to send me to, to the local comprehensive school. So, so, and I'm 
absolutely sure that the local convent school wasn't as good as the local high school. Right. So getting back to this comprehensive exam at the age of 11. So at the age of 11, you were expected in one exam your whole life trajectory could change. Well, yes, I think so. I actually, I actually think so because I think if I'd gone to a high, if I'd gone with my sister to the local high school, I would have had um, a different, better. I don't know. I would have, would have had a different education because then, so the, so it's a series of exams. There's the eleven plus is eleven, which determines what sort of school you go to, and because my parents were middle class, I was. I was sent to a private school, so they paid for my education. If, the, if my parents hadn't had any money, I would have gone to the local comprehensive school. And in fact, in retrospect, I think the local comprehensive school may actually have been better. Hmm. So I don't, I don't know that now. But it may be true that the local comprehensive school would have been a better school. So, yes, so, and then, you, then the next stage was O-levels, and then the next stage was A-levels. And to um, uh, do any do anything professional, you needed to get at least five or six O levels and three A levels. So, and I didn't manage to do those things partly because I was partly because I was I was um, sort of enjoying myself a bit. And, and, excuse me, excuse and me, wasn't excuse a, me. Wasn't a good <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. Now, come on, let us see. You were enjoying yourself. Can, well, Come on, tell us what you were doing as a youngster. No, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have no. even been 20, would you? No, 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 no. How old were you? 10, no. 15? What? Well, I was about 14, I suppose. Oh, well, what was happening? Well, what year? Well, 14, that's 48, that's... Oh, is that well, 60? Well, that's the middle of six, Yeah, it's 62. the early 60s. Oh. Yeah, the early 60s. And you have to remember that this is sort of middle England, which mm-hmm. was which was conservative, but there were things like folk clubs and jazz clubs and... And cinemas and mm. young men and young women and mm. so I was and I yeah so right. I was le- I was a less than good student in some ways like I I I I loved English and I loved history and but maths sciences I didn't mind biology actually and in the end I did biology as a as a as a subject here but. Mm. But, yeah, so, so anyway, I, I failed the, the o, my O-levels as well. So, so ended up going and doing a secretarial course. And just getting which, back, I'm, I'm just very interested in this early 60s period because yes. we all hear about the mid-60s and late 60s. So was there transformation occurring, this cultural transformation during that period which you got swept up in as a young woman? Um. Um, probably, yes, there would have been, there would have been, but more, it, it was probably a bit later. Right. So I think the early 60s was probably still fairly conservative. But I used to, I knew quite early on that I didn't want to stay in this small country town in England and that it felt, uh, it felt sort of stultifying. I didn't feel as if I could do things there. So, and very early on, I I can remember I used to walk down a hill and under a railway bridge to, to school. This was the high school. And trains used to go over the railway bridge, obviously. And these trains went to London. And I had made up my mind by the time I was probably 15, 14 or 15, that I was going to, I was not going to stay 
in this small town. I was going to go and move to London or wherever. But the train became this sort of symbolic thing that I was going to get away on. Mm, this metaphor so, for change, yes. Yeah. So uh, when did you get on that train? Um, well, um, I finished the secretarial course, hated it, vowed that I would never type another word in, <laughs> word in my life. Is it, what, what, did, what did you do? Type, touch typing? What's that thing? Yeah, I did touch typing and shorthand. Oh, shorthand. Oh, yeah. Oh, shorthand and touch typing. Mm. And touch typing, you have to be quick mm. and you have to not look at the keys. And mm. it's, it's... Anyway... <laughs> I didn't like it. We're dredging up <laughs> horrible memories. And I, and I couldn't see myself doing it. So when I was nearly 18, just, just short of 18, I became a matron in a boys' boarding school. A junior matron in the junior house of a boys' boarding school. <laughs> what, yes. in this little town or in London? No, no, this was in Sussex. I, Sussex. I moved then to Sussex. Did you catch so, the train? I want to know, did you catch the train? Uh, no, I think my, my parents probably drove me there the first time. I assume they were and happy. And from then onwards... Well, were they happy I, to get rid of you, were they? No, I don't know. No, no, no. So from then on, I caught the train to London, and then mm. I caught a bus the rest of the way. Right. If I went home. Mm. I went home, you know, for weekends and stuff, so... But I never lived for a long, a long, long period of time at home in, in, with my parents again. Uh, so, so, I, so I was a matron in this in a boys' boarding school, a junior matron in the junior house. So the boys' boarding school had a junior part and a senior part, and the junior part was for eight to thirteen-year-olds. And so I was a matron in this junior school, looking after eight to thirteen-year-old boys. Mm. Well, I had a previous, was, I had a previous producer on this program before the great Kelly Whitworth wandered in and she was a matron at a junior girls school here in in her early 20s that's interesting isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. But the, 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 there were four matrons and the two senior matrons were both in their 50s right. and then there were two junior matrons who were young late teens or early 20s so well, did you and did, did you there. aspire did you aspire to stay there till you your fifties, did you, or did you think? No, no, right. No, <laughs> no. I couldn't imagine. Here we are, 66, no. 67, no. 68. No, 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 no. And the the reason that the that the the reason that the older matrons were there was, I mean, I sort of, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Basically, <laughs> I got to seventeen, finished this secretarial course. I knew I didn't want to be. I knew I didn't want to do that. I had wanted to be a nurse. But I didn't get enough. I didn't pass the exam to be able to be able to become a nurse, mm. so I couldn't do nursing. So, so then it was, it was well. What, I did the secretarial course. Decided I didn't like it. Went and worked in a school. Still didn't really know what I was going to do, and so stayed in this in the in the school for about two years. Then moved to London, and and worked in an office in the end. But I was a telephonist, not a. I was a, a telephonist with the old plug and board. I was a receptionist, and uh, you, yeah. So, so and, I, and that was just a means of earning money, basically. So, this is you arrived in London in what nineteen sixty eight. If you were twenty, were you? Uh, or sixty seven. Yeah, probably. Well, it must have been a bit of shock for you, was it? Living in it London wonderful. during that period. No, it was wonderful. That's what I mean—a a positive well, shock. 
Yeah, no, it was fantastic. Uh, it, yeah, it was fantastic. It was great. And at, at first, it was a bit of a challenge because I was a bit hard up. Mm-hmm. London in the sixties was was you needed to have money, and I, and I moved there without a great deal of money, and I didn't have a job. So, but I got a job quite quickly. Um, as a recessionist, connectionist, having never done it before, but that's fine. They gave me the job, and and I stayed in that job for a couple of years, and then moved to another job doing the same thing, and then moved to and then came to Australia. So, but I, but London was fantastic. It was it was the sixties. It was yeah, that's what I'm saying. Tell us about it. You know? Tell these youngsters that are listening to the program whose lives have been blotted. By hex debts. Tell them what it was really like to be well, in London during that period. Come on, tell us well, where you went, what you okay. did, who you well, met. I didn't, I didn't do that much because I have to say I didn't have that much money. Mm. Because didn't have that much money. My, the, my, I shared a house with three or four others, depending how many were actually staying in the house. We shared rooms because we couldn't afford to have a have a big house because we were all in the we were all a bit hard up. We were all a bit. It, it was a bit difficult to find. I like there was no. It's quite different from now. I just think we couldn't afford to go out a great deal. Well, I couldn't. No, none of us could. We couldn't. So our our entertainment was very much at home and parties and and yeah, friends and drinks, but but nothing extravagant. Right. I don't think I did anything, and not many meals out. I have to say because it was. Again, I had lots of Australian friends. That's why I ended up here because I had, I had, I met, seemed to meet lots of Australians. There mm. were lots of Australians in London at that point. You know what they, you know what they were doing. They were escaping, like you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they escaped yeah. from a provincial Australia yeah. to London, and you escaped yeah. from provincial England to London. To London. Yeah, yeah that's right. So I li- some of them I lived with, a couple of them lived with us, mm. but I shared my house with. Somebody I'd worked with at the school, and a friend of hers, and a friend of hers. So there was sort of a core group of four of us. But an, an Australian friend came and lived with us, and yeah, other people came and went. So it was, and but we shared rooms. As I say, we we didn't we couldn't afford a, a great deal. And I went on a holiday to Portugal, mm-hmm. and I had to get a second job to be able to afford to go on that holiday. What, so, what, did you go? So you would have gone to Portugal just before the revolution. That was seventy four, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no. Portugal and, and mm. yeah, no. There was no revolution in Portugal, Portugal when I was there, and I was yeah. only there for two weeks. It was very, right. very. It was a holiday, you know. Like mm. I, my holidays before that had consisted of going to stay with somebody I knew or going home to my parents' house. Yeah, yeah. Portugal there. was the English barley, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I think Spain was, no, Spain was the English barley. Right. Portugal was for the more adventurous, was it? Probably, yes. Yeah. I think so. Mm. Spain was the English barley. You, you, you didn't get drunk on the cheap Portuguese no, port? No. Uh, no, no I, don't, I don't remember it. I, again, I remember having some Odd meals <laughs> and and the strong smell of garlic because I wasn't used to garlic. You know, Middle England <laughs> didn't eat garlic really, but yeah. Middle Portugal did. 
You know, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm sure you know this because obviously you're somebody who's travelled the world, but uh, do you know what Portugal's gift to Asia was? Apart from fail, no. fail Christianity? No. You know, all those classical deep-fried Japanese dishes, tempura and all that? Yeah. That's all Portuguese. Yeah, they introduced they introduced deep frying to the Japanese, and although the Japanese, after a while, left them on a little island because they didn't want to be con- contaminated by Christianity, they took up deep frying with a with a vengeance. Because mm. uh, obviously, you would have remembered in Portugal, you'd have all this deep fried stuff there. Yeah, we lived on sardines and tomatoes yeah. from memory because <laughs> they were the cheapest things you could buy at the market. Yeah, so. You're not a ten pound pom, are you? I am a ten pound. Oh. <laughs> t- now explain to people what a ten pom. Temp- okay, <laughs> so at some point in 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 it must have been about 1970. Mm-hmm. At some point, I decided that that I really wanted to see the world. So so I considered Canada, but it would have cost me a fair amount of money to get. I have relatives in Canada, and I had an uncle in Canada. So I considered Canada, but it would have cost me quite a bit of money to get to Canada, no money. So then I considered South Africa, but apartheid was fairly, um, wasn't going to go to South Africa because of apartheid. And so that left Australia, <laughs> which I could go to for a whole 10 pounds, which would be about $20. Mm, that's right. And, and so I applied, and at that point, I think Australia was quite willing to accept young Women, well, anybody from England, probably. Yeah, look, I, we, we, we wanted white people. Let's be realistic. You were white you and you were young and you were healthy. I was healthy. young. That's yeah. right. That's right. Young, they checked all that out. I'm mm. young, healthy. So I was offered a place to go, a £10 place to go. To Australia. I chose to go to Perth because my friend, from my the friend I knew the best in, in London was from Perth and her mother was in Perth. Mm. So um, I, and an, I and a friend... Decided to come together, so so we both paid our ten pounds. Got on the boat. I was a boat one. I didn't come by plane. I came by boat. What was the name so of the, the ten, What was the name of the boat? The name of the boat was the Elenis. It was a Greek boat. Yeah, and what did it take? What six to eight weeks, or a bit longer? It took five. Five. Look, look. I, yeah. won't, I won't ask about shipboard romances because uh, well, that's want... interesting. <laughs> <laughs> My ex-husband, I met on the Elenis. Oh. <laughs> It always happens when you're young <laughs> and on the open ocean. Uh, tell us about that meeting. Well, I have to say, the only thing I will, the one thing I will say about that meeting was that there was an interesting collection of people on that boat. There was, so it was a Greek boat. We came via South Africa, so um, Rotterdam, um, South Cape, not. Uh, um, Rotterdam left Thomas, Cape Town to Perth. Mm. Um, um, he so, uh, and and there were lots of families, but there was this sort of small group of of young people who sort of spent lots of their time drinking and talking and dancing, and that's it, really. Right. Um, right. So yeah. So and I yeah. So I met my ex husband on the boat. Um, uh, and then arrived in, I arrived in Perth. He was going to Melbourne. So we, it was it was like a holiday. I paid ten pounds for a, 
quite reasonable yes. holiday. You had to stay. Was it? Cruise, like, if you like. Yeah, you had, to, what, you had to stay two years. Was that? <laughs> had to stay two years. Yeah. And my plan was that I, because the people that I'd known in in London, the Australians I'd known in London, all seemed to have not plenty of money, but they had plenty of money by comparison with me. So they managed to get themselves to England for a start. So. My plan was that I would go to Australia, stay two years, earn enough money to come back to England overland. That was the plan. Oh, the big overland trip. The mm. big overland trip. The mm. combi. Yeah, the cheap hemp in uh, Afghanistan. The combi trip. Yeah, yep, that, yep. Sort of, that, that type of trip, yeah. Wind your way through. Yep. Did, did you ever do the trip? I didn't do that trip, no. Oh, well, so... I went back to England lots of times, but I didn't do that trip, no. So let's get back to Australia here. Secretarial job? Um, initially, yes. Mm. A receptionist job. Really? Telephones again, initially. Um, then got married and had had two children. And during the course of the children, I went back to school here. So then I did HSC. Was it called HSC then? I couldn't remember. Yeah, I think it was HSC. It could be VC, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But you, 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 gra- you graduated from high school, basically. I did. Yeah. I did. Which was interesting because, like, I was twenty something or other, and I had a couple of kids, and mm-hmm. and 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 the first two, the first subject I did English when I was pregnant, and then I went back and did two subjects at a taste school. That, that's and cheating. Then, that's cheating. Doing English wow. as an English person, you know, that's that's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> so I did English first. Then I then I did um, what did I do? I can't remember. I think it, I can't remember. What uh, politics? Uh, politics, what? biology. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So what? what, 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 what <laughs> anyway, I got five of them. So I got five of them, which enabled me to go and do something else. Which is what? Um, then I went and did welfare studies. Where I wanted to do nursing. Um, again, I went back. <laughs> wanted to do nursing, but the but the hours were were really too difficult to do if you had children. That's right. Little children. Look, you're very lucky. I mean, I've been a doctor for 45 years and uh, I give orders, nurses carry out the work. So you are lucky you didn't become a nurse because you would have hated it. You would have hated it. I don't think so. I don't think so. But uh, but it was just too difficult. Like I would have had to be at work by 7 o'clock in the morning and with two little kids, it was like, no, it's just too difficult. So so I went and did welfare studies, which was a two-year course. So had you come to Melbourne with your husband? Yes, I was in Melbourne. Right, right. Yeah. And where did you yeah. end up in Melbourne? Um, well, I live in Belgrave now. But did you end up, were you there when you first came in the hills or? No, uh, Upper Ferntree Gully. It's interesting, isn't it? A lot, a lot of Germans would have, and uh, Austrians would have gone to that area. Yeah, well, it's nice. Yeah, all right, okay, it's nice. It's trees right. and fresh air, and it's nice oh. to be here. Yeah. So you did welfare? Yes. Where was that? At Chisholm. It was Chisholm then. It's now Monash. Right. Right. And, and what did that lead to? Uh, well, when I, first of all, I worked in a community house for a short time, and then I worked at a drug and alcohol. I set up and ran um, a house for people, for women, young women who had been drug-dependent, drug or alcohol-dependent, and had done a detox and then and they had nowhere to live. So the organisation that I worked for set up a house for young women who needed to have some, needed some support and somewhere to live. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was, a, um, it, I have to say, it was not well organized. And I couldn't organize it any better because there wasn't any money. So I organized it as well as I could and then decided it was probably a losing game. And I and went and worked for the Victorian government. I was a child protection worker, which I think, you know, they generally have a bad reputation, child protection workers do. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, it's like any f- field of human endeavour. You can do a hundred good jobs, you do one bad job, and yeah. that's all people yeah. remember. It's like broadcasting, you know, you do 40 years yeah. of broadcast, you do one bad broadcast, and that's all people remember. I think it was Jane Kerner called as Rottweilers. That's right, yeah. You, you, know, the old, you know the old uh, Jane Kerner joke, don't you, about Rottweilers and social workers? Yeah. Or child protection so, workers, you know, what's the difference? Yeah, between, yeah what's the difference? Yeah, the difference is, yeah. Oh, what's the difference? Yes, okay. What's the difference, yeah. between, a child, what's the difference between a child protection worker and a Rottweiler? Yeah. You know the joke? It was a bit, it was really unkind. It was very, very nasty. Very unkind. <laughs> very unkind. And, and absolutely not true. I mean, no, I, that's I right. That yeah, job, yeah, they said. I did that job for a long time. What's and, a long um, time? 16 years. So, what, why, so why do you think people find themselves in the situation where the department and child protection workers kind of intrude in, into their lives? What are the major um, issues that you found in that Poverty. Mm-hmm. Poverty. Right. I think. And lack of education, lack of chances, um, lack of equality in, in the way we end up. There's lots of in, generational entrenched poverty that just keeps going on and on. And won't change unless you change the system. Mm. So, is that what you learnt? That things won't change unless you change the system during those sixteen years? Was that, or you knew that uh, beforehand? I probably knew it beforehand, but uh, probably I knew it not as not with quite such um, stark reality. Probably. Mm. There were there were people who who there was who we really it was very difficult to help because because they weren't they had they come through the same system they it perpetuated itself almost and there were kids that I I I knew that the, this child would end up in the same situation that I was trying to get it out of but it was. But it was. But I really loved that job, and I loved my clients, and I loved the people who worked with me and for me. And but in the end, the court system got me, because the court system is 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 really a shocking system. You're talking um, about the children's court, are you? I'm talking about the children's court. Well, tell us why. Um, it's it's like a well, it's 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 combative, right. so. So um, it's combative. um, Families would only go to court if if a child protection worker believed that they were actually unable to care for their children. The whole system was... was, In in theory, we were were only supposed to stay involved with the family for three months. Um, And then if we couldn't couldn't basically fix it within three months, you you were... supposed to go to court and get either and get a supervision order or if the children couldn't be at home 
um, a guardianship order. So, so I mean, there were so many limitations, and the court was adversarial. So, so the, um, child protection, the child protection worker was uh, supposed to advocate for the family, but but was also supposed to be the Rottweiler, if you like, yeah. who who actually. So it was a really, it was a sort of difficult role. So you had to run this sort of balance between actually being, 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 being the person with the big stick mm. and the kind person who's saying, "Look, we can give you this, and we can do this," and and tries to think of, um, prob- to try tries to problem solve, tries to help the kids. It was so. But anyway, we ended up in court often, mm-hmm. not that often, but often enough to to make to make court a part of. The system that you couldn't avoid. If I could have avoided it, I'd probably. I hated it because the because lawyers, the lawyers were against. If they were representing, so the child had a lawyer, the parents had a lawyer, and DHS had a lawyer. Mm. The child protection worker had had a lawyer. So, mm. and you tried to work out the best possible way of managing what you were there for, which was that. The parents were finding it difficult to manage looking after their kids, and so the kids were at risk of something. Sometimes it was really serious. Sometimes it was children who'd been hurt, were bruised. Sometimes it was children who were emotionally damaged by the way their parents looked after them. Children who were sexually abused. So there were there were sort of, but sometimes it was just people who were poor and not able to manage their lives. There are people who actually can't manage their lives very well, and so and so and that. But we ended up in the children's court, and the lawyers didn't help. I have to say, particularly parents' lawyers, because they they their job was to keep the children at home with the parents. And sometimes, when I first started working there, it was actually easier. We, there was much, there was more discussion, if you like, and um, uh, it was easier. It it it, it got more difficult mm. to the point where I just um, hated going to court. Right? Did this? And I didn't go very often. Well, during this period, I mean, yeah. Well, so. during this period, you were trying to bring up two young kids, also. So obviously, there would be a kind of a well. A flow on in, into your own personal life. If you've they were teenagers, so mm. they were they were late primary, right? By right. Then. But I'm just saying it, it. I mean that type of work. Yes, it was. It, yeah. it, it washes into all yeah. aspects of your life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I and I worked enormously long hours, mm. which I, you didn't get the work done unless you worked enormously long hours. In the end, I went to the after hours service for a while, which mm-hmm. was all right, and then I went back to. A, a regional office, and then I went and, and then I went and worked for Anglicare. Same, same, same type same of work. Job. Same job. Same type of work, but mm. no, but but less court. So we, so it was like we were the kind side of. So we had child protect, we had clients from child protection, but we weren't. We were not the child protection workers. We had oh. to negotiate with them all the time. We weren't child protection workers, so I dropped in salary considerably, and but but didn't work as long hours, and yeah, it was better. 
Look, if I had a magic wand and I made you head of the, the department, child protection, what changes... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can hear you laughing. What changes would you think would be useful? Because obviously it's about protecting the child. Yeah, and you'd have to change the court system as well yep. so that it is not adversarial. I think Scotland... Um, I don't know much about it, but I think Scotland has a system where... And and over the time that I was at DHS, it sort of improved. There were many more family conferences and case conferences, and it, it, but it, they never quite managed to take away the adversarial nature of the court. So, so you know, like I would... I had some extraordinarily difficult cases and I wrote some extraordinarily long and difficult reports. Mm. But but the recommendations often weren't taken any notice of. So it was... Yeah, anyway. Difficult. So how, how much of your life, how many years of your life were taken up in this type of um, work? Uh, 25. Right. So at the end of 25 years, what, you just felt it was time to jump into another pond or...? Well, I retired. You retired. At the end of Anglicare, I retired. I was 65, I retired. Retired. Right. All right. So don't tell me your life started when you turned 65. Not really, no. Well, tell us things you've been, you were doing apart... Oh, no, but... but uh, so, so, okay, so while I was still working, so I had my two kids, and I've always been... Um, I'm a, I'm a social being, I think, so, and I've always been involved with... I was involved with my kids' school, for instance. So I was in... I went and... I, I did the canteen thing mm-hmm. and heard kids read and was on the Parents and Friends Association and the school council. And so that, um, that was... I was working at that time as well. Right. And, uh, and I was in... I was... In Oxfam, uh, Oxfam has local groups. So I was in Oxfam um, for many, many years. We had a group up here. There were a few of us in. Yeah, we had a, an Oxfam group here that um, raised money for Oxfam. And I was on the management committee of a women's refuge, and I was on a feminist mm-hmm. collective management committee of a an organisation called Flat Out, which supported women who came out of jail. Tell us about tell us about the uh, being on a management committee for a women's refuge. What, how much? What did that entail, and what were you trying to achieve? Well, well that's it's it actually uh, meetings, monthly meetings, because they um, refuges were run by a management committee. Mm-hmm. So. And basically, it's providing safety for women who who aren't who are in situations of domestic violence. So, and so they it was, it was secret. The hat, nobody knew where it was except the people who actually were living in there and the management committee. Um, there was yes, yeah, so it was it was sort of just basically organising, helping the people who organised it. Right manage the place mm-hmm. it, it was a monthly meeting and, and the odd other thing and I actually don't the odd other thing would have been meeting to, to arrange other things but in I can't remember what else we did to be mm-hmm. quite honest well you're keeping the place open basically yeah 
Yeah. And how about this uh, feminist collective you, you just mentioned before? Well, Flat Out. Mm. Flat Out was an organisation that um, when women came out of jail, often they needed a lot of support. They needed housing, they needed help to find work, they needed help with child protection. I, I was aware of them because of child protection. So I'd sort of... Um, I'd been to... I suppose I'd been to education type conferences and things where and flat out was there. So I, I just approached them and said, I'm just interested. I'm a child protection worker and I can probably be of some use to you. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. When you said that, did they put a little cross in front of their faces and say, be gone, evil one, or did they welcome you? No, they didn't. They were, they, no, no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Because it was, it was, it was, it was, no, it, I'm sure, because I, yeah, there was a whole, there were a range of people on that in that collective. Mm. There were lawyers, there was me, there was all sorts of people, mm-hmm. other social workers, people who who had, who sort of tried to bring something to managing that organisation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a very big organ- organisation. There were probably, probably about half a dozen workers, oh. maybe not, it wasn't huge. And basically the workers were, were were support workers, I suppose you'd have, but they did lots of um, advocating and housing and stuff with child protection and yeah, just helping mm. women who who were disadvantaged, often again poor. Right. Have you noticed? Have you noticed any change in the type of clientele you would come across as you know the decades rolled into each other? Were things different um, as far as child protection and uh, the type of work you've been involved in all well, your life? Have you noticed changes that, that are occurring that for the worse or I mean, better? I can't say that all the clients were poor. That I that mm. child that I thought child protection they weren't. Some there were some, there were some quite middle class people, mm. and and there was a big range of, of people. But I think a lot of the problems were related to, to either um, money. Being money being a problem or or generational poverty, um, there were there are a lot lot more children who were sick as I, as, it, as I progressed through my like when I first started when I first started working there there were very few people with ADHD or autism or any of the things that are now quite commonplace, mm. and it gradually got more and more. There were children who had quite cha- well, very challenging behavioural problems that, and they were in families that weren't poor. They were in families that, that they were in families. They were they were across the board. There was no difference in the socio-economic status of the children who had. Maybe there was a bit, but mm, there were. It was a much more gen- general problem that that children would have some sort of behavioural problem that made it very difficult for schools and parents to manage them. Mm. So, and so it did change slightly to managing actually those behavioural problems of, of the children. Oh, that's interesting. Whether, whether it wasn't an issue before then and now it's become an issue or whether well, it wasn't an issue and it's now... It's the issue may not have been as obvious, but mm. I I was also I 
I am one of my workers at Anglicare work and we're particularly interested in what children were eating and I was this worker did some really good work with one family mm. where she managed to change what there was one child in the family that was difficult and she did lots of work with the family to change what that child ate and that child improved when she didn't eat as much mm-hmm. um, processed food, sugar, that sort of... So over, when she over, ate, overstimulation. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and just I just think, I, I don't know whether... I'm, probably work has been done on, on the... Well, I know work has been done on the effects of food, the environment... All the things that are around children now that weren't around children 20 or 30 years ago and are around children all the time now. Mm. So, Victims of our own success. Now, getting getting back to your life at 65, when you turned 65 and retired, did you um, start thinking about a nursing home or did that uh, open up new (laughs) avenues for you? I don't think so. So so now, now, so now in the past few years, first of all, I was involved with No Macus and Tacoma. Now I'm heavily involved in... Hang on, hang on. Let, let's let's get... Asylum Seeker, because I have to get this in. No, no, we've got plenty, we've got plenty of time. Remember, <laughs> I'm rowing the boat, all right? Well, you're not going to get it, but you have to get this bit in. It will get in. There'll be there's still we've got plenty of time. We've got about 15 minutes to go. I know okay. it sounds like an eternity. It's it's a marathon, okay? And we'll let you sprint mm-hmm. at the end. Now, no McDonald's in Tacoma. Tell us about that. No Mac is in oh, well, Tacoma. No McDonald's. I retired in 2013, and it was just at the beginning of mm. of the no Mac, of McDonald's wanting to build mm. McDonald's in Tacoma, which is the next little town along. Mm. And so uh, there, there was a huge groundswell of people here that didn't want McDonald's. Huge. We surveyed Tacoma, and and over ninety, about ninety four percent of the people in Tacoma did not want that McDonald's built. However, it was built. We lost. They pulled down a really lovely Indian restaurant. They, they pulled down two 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 buildings: a house that was a, an Indian restaurant, lovely Indian restaurant, and the building next door, which was an old dairy. And they raised those buildings and built McDonald's in Tacoma. Yeah, you know, Which, um, yeah, yeah, I remember still that. There. Look, I'm forever grateful for that campaign. You know why? It was a fantastic campaign. No, 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 no. no. I said I'm grateful. Yes. All right, this is it's all about yes. me. Why it's not about why you. Are you grateful? Why are you grateful? <laughs> because uh, another program involved in Talkback with Attitude, we did a live broadcast protest at outside the McDonald's headquarters here in Victoria, in Smith That's Street, right. Collingwood. Did you come to that? Yes. Probably I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that, we got a radio award for that uh, little... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Well, there you go. The yeah, golden I mark. I didn't get it. Pat, my co-host, I gave it to yeah. her. She's, she's yeah. into awards. Yeah. So, no, it was great. We, we had about 40 people, 40, 50 yeah. people. Half of them had turned yeah. up from Tacoma and they were outside yeah. McDonald's. And yeah. we had a live broadcast. It was wonderful. Yeah. And so, we had lots of live broadcasts. We had Channel 7. We had... But all the majors... That's majors. right, yeah, rub it in, rub it in. You had all the majors and, and 3CR. No, no, and, and four, of, four, of, four of us went to America mm-hmm. and went to the head office of, of McDonald's mm-hmm. and got heaps and heaps of coverage for that. So it was, it was an extraordinarily well-run, amazingly well-run. It was a brilliant campaign. Writer. 
but it was brilliant. Yeah, but the, but the, but the question. Yeah, they still built. But, but the, yeah. the question is, did they give you any three burgers? I really want to know. Did they try to bribe you <laughs> when you were there? No, well, well I don't remember. <laughs> you know, oh, that's what they all no, say. I don't remember. I, I, reckon, I reckon the police got three burgers. Right. <laughs> I hate to say it, but. But we always thought that because there were lots of police involved yes, as well, yeah. we sat down and were carried off by the police. All right. Look, in the last five or six minutes, tell us what you're doing now. Okay, so now I'm very much involved with um, with refugees and asylum seekers, and I'm a member of the Grandmothers for Refugees and an organisation called Kindred, and I'm sort of on the periphery of that. There's lots of of, of refugees advocacy groups mm-hmm. so so that's what I do now I, I protest um, I, there's a group of us stand at the roundabout in Belgrade every Saturday we well, what time Asian, hang on no, no, the, 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 let's look at this because we want to get more people down there so yeah, Belgrade at the roundabout 11 to 12 11 to 12 right, every the, Saturday in the middle in the middle of the roundabout no no we did but the police asked us to move so we moved Right, so where are you now? So we're beside the roundabout, on, yeah. the, on the pavement beside the roundabout. You got a nice banner? Yeah, we've got lots of banners right. and lots of signs. Lots of... And this, this Friday is International Human Rights Day. Mm-hmm. So there is a vigil at the Park Hotel prison in Carlton. There are still 36 men in, in the Park Hotel in Carlton. So um, it's it's in Carlton, Lincoln Square. It's in Lincoln Square, Carlton. They've been there for a year. Oh, yeah, a year. It's about a year now. Prior to that, they were a year in the Mantra Hotel in Preston. They, they, um, people who were medivaced from Nauru and Manus before the medivac legislation was um, repealed, and so they were in about a hundred of them were initially um, put in the Mantra. And then they've been gradually re- releasing, releasing a few at a time. There are 36 still in the Park Hotel in Carlton. And there's no reason for them to be there. They they've, haven't committed a crime. Well, they came by boat. That's the problem. So they came by boat after July 2013 when uh, Kevin Rudd said... Um, nobody who comes by boat will ever be able to settle here, and so there's a there's the current the current system is just appalling. There are hundreds of people who who are on temporary visas or no visas at all because the visas have run out. So, and it's it's difficult to get work without a visa. It's difficult to get work if you have a short term visa. There are hundreds of people in community detention who have no visas. And they're not allowed to work. Um, the logic of it, they are partially supported by the government, the people in community detention. The people with, the people without visas are not supported by the government. So there's a lot of people who are really in dire straits. People who are refugees, they've come from, they've come from Afghanistan, Syria, Sudan, all over the place. They've come from all over the place. And, and, once upon a time, even under Malcolm Fraser, we were actually kind to people and oh, welcomed right. them and I helped, remember, I remember and helped them. Yeah. But now it seems as if mm-hmm. we just say, well, 
we don't want you here and it's we'll a, just put you away somewhere. I mean, this is the hundredth, what is it, the eighth year they've been in detention. Mm-hmm. People, people need to remember that. This is mm-hmm. eight years it's in detention. eight years. Whether it's nine around, years next year. Next yep, year. Yep, nearly nine years. And, nearly nine years. And under the Australian Constitution, as they found out about 25 years ago, that the government has the constitutional right to detain people indefinitely without charge. Yep. Yeah, there are people who've mm-hmm. been in there are people who've been in detention longer than eight years. There's yeah. a few people who are who, for one reason or another, are stateless, mm. and um, like maybe they don't know what to do with those people. But there are not many, but mm. there are a lot of people, hundreds of people in community detention. And if they do the wrong thing, in theory, they could be put back into locked detention. Mm. I don't think they will because because all the detention centres are full. The people who can't be deported. Mm. And there, there are 60,000 people waiting for reviews. That's right. That people don't There's understand lots. that. Oh, 32,000. Yeah, there are lots of people waiting for a review. There are mm. still 200 and, about 230 people on Nauru and Manus mm. who, who are not in, in, in theory, not in a detention centre because the detention centres have closed. Yes. But they're still in those two places and they've got they've got no visas they they're sort of stateless they've got nowhere to go and unless they can unless the government changes their mm. attitude towards um New Zealand That's right. or unless they can send more people to America the american thing is just about done now mm. we because there was they um they made the arrangement with Obama Bush Bush, I think it was. Oh, Obama. Obama they right. made the arrangement with Obama that, that they would take some of ours if we took... Some of theirs. It's just That's a right. weird arrangement. Oh, anyway, there were, it was about 1,100. It was over 1,000 people, and we're nearly at the limit of those of those people. So there are still a few people trickling off to America, not many. Mm. And there are a few people who go to Canada because Canada has a really good sponsorship program. Mm. But you have to raise enough money to get them to get them there and support them for a year. So Mm. there's so that's what I do now basically. Great. Now look in the last two minutes, have you got any advice for our younger listeners? We must have one listener under ninety somewhere. Right. I mean, I mean, you've been around for seventy-four years. You've done lots of things. You've been part of the system. You've been outside the system. You know, say so... advice. My advice is, when somebody tells you something, be critical. Just actually listen to what people say carefully and ask them. Don't be frightened of asking questions. Don't be frightened of checking what they're saying. Try and check that what they say is true because there are newspapers in this country that promulgate such a load of lies and misinformation. It's, it, uh, I can't believe how much misinformation there is out there. So what I would say to young people is make sure... You question what you are told. Look around you. Um, be kind. The best thing you can be is kind to people. Yeah. What else can I say? Well, mm-hmm. all I can say is I was about to take a collection to send you back to England, but I've decided. <laughs> I have decided. <laughs> I've decided you are, as they say, as it's Christmas, you're an ornament to the nation. So England's lost just... our game. Can I just give a plug? Yeah, There's sure. A vigil. 
There's a vigil outside the Park Hotel prison in Carlton at 6.30 this Friday night. It's International Human Rights Day. The other thing that people need to do is phone Alex Hawke, write letters to your local Member of Parliament, and dare I be political, don't vote this lot back in. Thank you very much, Prue Light. All the best to you, and can you make me one promise? Can you invite me to your 100th birthday party? Because you, you, you had that grandmother who lived forever, so I'm sure you'll live forever. You seem to have the energy. All the best, and thank you for sharing your life and uh, your advice with uh, our two listeners. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bring me shelter. I will not harm you. Bring me shelter, please. Bring me shelter. I will not harm you, I would shelter you. People would do anything for their families. It could happen to anyone anytime. Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on that. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders, and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.